0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we just finished with Chanukah, and the timing of t- the end of Chanukah and, and Parshas Vayigash, which is the reconciliation of Yosef and his brothers, I think is timed really, really perfectly. Um, because Chanukah is really all about the fixing of the eyes, and now we have, bless you, now we have uh, Yosef and his brothers Seeing each other in a different light, um, so so this is a, this is a lesson to us uh, on how how to look at each other basically and and how to make peace not only with each other but with ourselves and um, you see all these dynamics um, playing out and let me just let me just begin uh, actually with uh, something that happened to me on Hanukkah just. Uh, kind of made me very happy, so I want to share it with you. So, um, I haven't run out of gas in my car in a, in a while, in a few years. <laughs> the last time I had run out of gas, it was so traumatic that I thought, okay, from now on, I'm not going to do it again. I, I, I ran out of gas, not exactly, but basically on a freeway. It's on a highway. It's ex- this can be fatal. In fact, someone in our community, unfortunately, just recently died in this way. So, it's it's really... It's really a horrible thing, you know, and because you can imagine you're on a highway and you run out of gas. If someone just takes, if you're just parked in the middle of a freeway with people going 60, 70 miles an hour, they'll plow into you, you know, and they, and they can do it very innocently. Just they take their eye off the road for one second. So please, um, I'm telling you this so that everyone should be very careful about not running out of gas, you know. Um, anyway, I was able to, in the final seconds, as my car was really stopping, to get off the freeway. And so that, that was, I, the, I, at the time, I, I, I didn't even realize how how serious it was what what it, had what it happened. So um, anyway, um, so since then I, I had resolved it's not going to happen again. But this past week, I actually was on Zos Hanukkah. on the eighth day of Chanukah. I I ran out of gas again, and um, and I pulled over. By this time, I was on Pico Boulevard. I don't know if you know where the pizza station is, so I just pulled in front of there, and, and so I was safe. because I was by the curb. I was off the avenue, and, and, um, and, but I was in a red zone there, but at least I was parked in a, in a normal way. And I was trying to get just one more block, block and a half over, there's a gas station. And I wasn't, just the car was at. Couldn't, couldn't make it, but it was a short walk, so got out of my car, and I was just thinking, well, you know, I'm in a red zone here, and as I was getting out of my car, the, a police car drove by, and I thought, well, yeah, this is a very busy, street. You know, there are going to be police cars all the time. I'm going to get a big fat ticket. And I was like, oh man, all right, but what can I do? I got to get some gas. So so I walked to the gas station and um, hoping that I wasn't going to get a ticket. And I asked the person in the the booth there, could I have one of those canisters? I'll buy one of these canisters so I can get the gas and then bring it back to my car. And um, the person says, oh, we don't sell those but six blocks up on the corner of Beverly, there's a, there's a gas station there. They sell those canisters. You can buy one there. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm lucky just not to get a big red zone ticket walking one block from my car. Like now I'm going to have to walk six blocks that way, six blocks the other way, fill the whole thing up. For sure I'm going to get a ticket. And, and, um, and just as I'm kind of running through what to do next, um, my phone rings. And I see, you know, like the name of the person calling on the phone. He, maybe I get a call from him, maybe once a year, maybe. And I'm like, oh, you know, what's this? So I answer, I answer the phone, and he said, and I say, hi. He says, hi. He says, I'm at your house. I said, I'm not, I'm not at my house. <laughs> he says, well, he says, uh, he says, I know. <laughs> I said, I'm out of gas. Now he's been. Um, trying to get his driver's license or talking about it or whatever it is for like years, years and years. Like maybe more more than 5 years. Right? He said, "Oh, I just got my driver's license. I'm driving right now." He said, "And I just and I have a, a canister. I just got a canister too. I'll drive you over some gas." So, and he was just a few blocks away. I was like, "Can't believe it. This is amazing." So, while I'm just standing there, and I didn't get a ticket, thank God. I'm, I'm standing in front of my car, I'm thinking about it. And again, it was Zos Hanukkah, it's the eighth day of Hanukkah. This is the culmination of Hanukkah. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, what does this mean? I'm out of gas. And I thought, oh, where does gas come from? Oil. I was out of oil. <laughs> <laughs> and here all of a sudden, miraculously, I got oil. You know, this is amazing, you know. so, <laughs> So... So thank God, you know, we say that one of the blessings of Hanukkah, we talk about the the, the miracles that are happening to this moment. And miracles are happening all the time. And and again, this is part of what Hanukkah is about, fixing the eyes so that we can see the miracles going on at every moment. And I'm going to just talk about Yosef and his brothers in a moment, but just to transition into it, just I want to share this idea with you. Again, perhaps, but it's, I think it's an important idea because our, our, our prayers are being answered all of the time, almost on a constant basis. But the thing is, is that we're not making the prayers that are being answered. <laughs> so what do I mean by that? So just to, to give an example, imagine, imagine you, you know, you're, you're leaving your house and you, and you go to your car but really, there was a prayer, a prayer there was just answered, which is that your car didn't get stolen. But you didn't pray, please God, may my car not be stolen. But your prayer was answered. Then when you turn the ignition key, your car starts. Another prayer was just answered. Only you didn't pray it. Please God, may my car still work today. And, and I'm not even being facetious, facetious right now. You press on the, the gas... Your foot's still there. Says <laughs> so your foot's still got to be there. You know, people chas v'shalom. They lose limbs all the time. My dad had his the, from his knee down amputated. You know, so I mean, it's uh, So 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 prayers are being constantly answered, but we're not praying the prayers. So just so so, I say that because. When one sees it in that way, and I, I think that's the, the the truth and reality, um, that, uh, that one realizes just how constantly involved in your life God is. Right? Because most people, I would say 99% of the people, look at it a different way, which is, you know, I'm making these particular prayers, and then either God is answering them or he's not answering them. And that's the measure of whether he's involved in my life or not. And this is a completely false perspective. Um, but but it, it, it comes from this place of, and it's almost unavoidable, this place of uh, extreme entitlement that that all of us experience. And... And to a certain extent, we need to have some aspect of that, meaning to say, we need to feel a sense of ownership in terms of our life in our body, and and and. But at the same time, though, that that very sense of ownership um, dulls our senses to the fact that, that that God is 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 doing everything for us at every moment. And so this is this is the great challenge of being a human being in the world, which is to take responsibility and to be proactive, while constantly being aware that God is essentially doing everything and allowing us to do everything. It's an extraordinarily difficult balance to maintain. One has to be really refined and has to work on it constantly. And let me approach the same idea from a different angle. Um, I, I was talking with someone this past week who's an artist, and he told me that he was in the Grand Canyon, and I asked him how it was, and he said, now he's an artist by profession, he's an, an actual artist, a working artist, um, and you would imagine, an artist in the Grand Canyon, he will be in this state of constant bliss, right, like all the beauty, and he said, well, you know, for the first half hour or so, it was pretty amazing, and then I was checking my watch, when, I can, when can I get out of here? And I thought to myself, like, why are we like that so much? Like, why is it that we see amazing beauty? And we can't stay in this, or I'll speak for myself, but I think this is really true in general. I, I know I would like to stay in a state of constant awe. Constant awe of what God is doing in this world. Constant. Like, to the most mundane thing, to the most extraordinary thing, to be no less in awe of everything 24-7. And I wonder if um, it's not a side effect of uh, another ability that God gave us, which is God blessed us all, every human being, with an amazing ability to be a survivor. Meaning to say that we one of the the, the, the the greatness of a human being, part of it lies in our ability to adjust to all sorts of situations and to get used to all sorts of situations, even situations of um, when we're deprived of very essential things or very essential whether they're emotions, like people who grow up in a, in a loveless environment or even in a, an emotionally abusive environment or in a state of deprivation where they don't have food to eat or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's a blessing that we can sort of adjust to that situation and get used to it. You know, like that is God's sort of like arming us with the fortitude to, to be able to go on. On the other hand, though, this ability to get used to things also has sort of a, a negative consequence, which is that we can also get used to extreme beauty. That all of a sudden at a certain point you look at the Grand Canyon and you go, I gotta get to the dentist. You know what I mean? It's like I got I got stuff to do. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, it's beautiful, I get it, it's beautiful, I got other stuff. So, you know, I gotta check my email. Whatever it is, it's like, you know, at a certain point, you we also get used to the beauty. At a certain point, we also get used to the fact that, all right, I get it, God's infinite, he's running the world. I got to get to the supermarket. You know, it's so, it's like it's, it's kind of heartbreaking if you think about it because I don't want to get used to that. There's certain things I don't want to get used to. You know, I, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time and, and I, I'm sure you've probably all experienced this in your own life. A lot of times when you're with a loved one, um, you know, whoever that is, whoever's fitting into that category, You, many times people loved their loved ones the most when they're away. Because you miss them and you long for them and you're like, ah, whatever it is. And then they come back and you're so happy to see them. And then really oftentimes in a very short period of time, they're annoying you. (laughs) And you're like, it's like how... It's ironic, because, you know, you, you want them with you more than anything, and then when they're with you, you're already in this state of being used to them again. So, so the way Rip Shlomo put it is, is, how can you be in the state of missing someone while you're with them? You see, so this is, this is something uh, that has to be cultivated in terms of our relationship with God, which is the ability to somehow... Long for him. This is this is the aspect of longing. And and that you're even as he's present and you're recognizing what's here, you're longing for further closeness. And in a strange way, it's it's easier to do sometimes with God than it is with people. Meaning to say, because God never makes himself completely manifest. Because you can only, you can't see the totality of God. Like as Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, no one can see my face and live. Because if you could see the totality of God, then you'd be God. Right? So how, only God can see God, basically. You know, because otherwise, so it's clear. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is is that is that in a way, it's easier to long for God than it is to long for another person. Because you, even as you're in touch with him, you can be missing him because you realize that there are giant aspects of him that you're not in touch with. So even when he's there, he's not completely there because he's so infinite. I mean, he's there completely, but, but you're not aware of his complete presence. So that's easier to long for with, with another person that's them, there they are, you know, that's, that's you, you know, so, so when you have it completely, then you can, then, you know, it's, uh, there's an expression in, 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 in English, which is uh, familiarity breeds contempt, that as you grow used to something, it's sort of like, ah, I'm used to it already, and so you have to, be able to do that with another person. You have to understand. You see, you have to understand that that the, the, the depths of a, another person is not completely revealed. You have to understand that as much as you think you know the other person, you don't completely know the other person. And you have to keep on reminding yourself of that. And that, by the way, is the truth. Otherwise, it's really arrogance. But, you know... It's easy to be guilty of something like that, where you feel like, ah, I know you, know what you're going to say, whatever it is. We have to avoid that. And that's why I think in Pirkei Avos, with that in mind, I think we can understand uh, one of the Mishnahs in Pirkei Avos, where it lists different things of ways to become close with Hashem. And one of them is to uh, love Hashem, and another is to love people, to love His creatures. And I, I always thought to myself, that seems repetitive. Because if you love Hashem, Hashem is the totality of all of existence and beyond. So that should include loving his creations. If you love Hashem, don't you automatically love his creations? And you see that no. You can love Hashem and then you can be very sort of, you know, dismissive of his creations. You see, so it, it, there, there is a. It is a separate thing. One has to cultivate it. It's a separate skill set to be able to see in someone who you think you know the fact that there's an aspect to their soul, which is infinite, which there are depths that you'll never know. And, and that's what keeps uh, relationships alive. This ability to understand that you don't fully know the other person yet, and you'll never fully know the other person yet. Because they have an aspect of the inf- infinite inside of them, which is a piece of Hashem, which is, which is their neshamas, which is their souls. You see, Rabbi Shlomo says that when, um, when we ate from the tree of knowledge, that's what brought death into the world. That's what it says in the, in the Torah. So when you think you know something, that brings a certain aspect of death into it. See, if you think you know another person, oh, I know you then there's all of a sudden the relationship is a little bit dead. So, so there's this, I know that when Reb Shlomo married me and my wife, he blessed us that we should always surprise each other. So that's the, what does it mean to surprise each other? Not to jump from behind a door. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, you know, it's, that I, I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that I don't know you completely. Right? That, so this is a blessing for the relationship. To, to surprise one another. Um, okay, so with this in mind, with this in mind, let's use this uh, introduction to, to look at Yosef and his, and his brothers, or the brothers in Yosef. Because if you think about it, now this is, this happened, this is a historical event so it happened. And given the fact that it happened, let's just look at some of the peculiarities of, of this story. Because here you have a whole bunch of brothers. Okay, granted they've been, they've been apart from Yosef for many, many, many years. And they say that Yosef was young without a beard when he left. And now he's got a full beard and so he looks different. He's now a man. He was more of a boy when he left. You know, he's dressed in all these Egyptian garbs. He's speaking Egyptian, right? And it's the last person who they ever... They think he's dead. He's the last person they'd ever... So there's, there's a lot of very good reasons why they didn't recognize him. And, and in fact, they didn't recognize him. But what I, I just want to suggest... You have a lot of brothers there. Not one of them recognized him? Right? Don't you think one of them would have said, that guy looks familiar? Or don't you think he looks like Yosef? Not one recognized him? So the answer is yes. Not one recognized him. That, that's correct. But what I'm suggesting is, or what I want to point out is, look at how much darkness was there. Spiritually speaking, how much darkness was there that they, no one recognized Him? There was a lot of darkness. And that's why, again, I think it's meaningful that when they see Him, so to speak, that, that this chapter of them seeing Him is coming after Hanukkah, which is the fixing of the eyes. You know? You see, I was thinking about it we finished lighting the menorah. So now, so now what? You know? And to answer that, why was the miracle of Hanukkah for eight days? And of course, that, that in itself is a famous question. Because if there was one day's worth of oil, and it burned for eight days, that means the miraculous aspect was for seven days. Right? Because, because there was a normal day's worth of oil there. So that's, that's not a miracle. The seven extra days that it burned, that's, that's the miracle. And yet we talk about the miracle of the eight days. So, so there are a lot of different answers to that. One is that they found it was a miracle. They found one un, you know, undesecrated uh, flask of oil. That, that was a miracle. Another is, no, 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 we're celebrating the, mi- the military victory. That that's the that's the miracle. But the answer that I like the most so far is that no. You say that it's normal for for a fire to come when you light oil? That what what's what's normal about that? It's completely miraculous. Just what we call nature is an ongoing miracle. Nature is an ongoing miracle. It's just a miracle that we've gotten used to. That's all. Okay, so, so yes, that first day when we lit, that in itself was a miracle. So, but here's the question. Why eight days? Five days would have been very miraculous. Ten days also would have been miraculous. A hundred years would have been a wonderful miracle. Why eight days? So the answer that's given is because it takes eight days for, to produce this type of olive oil. Now think about this. This has a lot of implications. This means that on the ninth day they were making they were they were lighting oil but they were lighting oil that they made during the first eight days. Cuz it takes 8 days to make this type of oil. So the miracle lasted as long as was necessary for us to be able to do it on our own. Okay? I'll put it another way. I'll put it another way. That means while this miracle was going on, everyone was working. <laughs> See, this is interesting, because you think, well, you know, a miracle means that I don't have to do any work. <laughs> the miracle's taking place, so I'm not doing any work, so it's a miracle. But that's not what happened, because it takes eight days to make this oil. And after the miracle stopped, we continued to light. That means that they were working during the eight days while the miracle was going on. See, I think that this is a big bit of instruction to us. That a lot of times we, 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 we forget that... See, we have to understand... And I really, I'm really trying to get this point into my bones. So I, I'm, 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 I'm really trying to stress it. Which is that so many people think that the religious personality is, we say, oh God, I believe in you. You made the whole world. You're, you're, you're constantly involved with everything. Everything is only due to you and your greatness and your love and everything like that. And then I'm putting it in your hands, God. And God says, oh, thank you so much. I love that you recognize me and appreciate me. And now God throws it back to us and says, okay, now you do it. (laughs) And then then we go, oh, okay, now I do some more. Thank you, God, for the ability to do it. And he goes, oh, thank you so much for reaching out to me. And he throws the ball back to us again. (laughs) And this is, people think that somehow being religious allows us to To, in this very sort of like, you know, permitted, even, uh, you know, exalted way to abdicate responsibility. It just, it doesn't mean that at all. Now, there are times in our life where we have done everything that we can do. And then we just say, okay, Hashem, I, I did everything that I can do. Now it's in your hands. Right? There are situations like that. But I don't think that's the general rule at all. And here you see an extreme example of it, that even during the eight-day miracle, they were working on making the oil for when, should the miracle stop or whatever it is, you know, or after the miracle ends or whatever it is, that it was just to buy time in order for us to get our sort of infrastructure up and going. So... So a lot of work has to go into recognizing Yosef for dispelling that darkness. Because it's only when Yosef feels as though the brothers have done complete tshuva, that they've completely rectified this this act of selling him into slavery, that Yosef says, okay, I'm Yosef. So, so to speak, after Hanukkah, after we finish lighting the light, now it's up to us to produce the light. Each one of us in our own lives today, in, in whatever spheres that we're involved in, it's up to us now to generate the light. We'll get back to Yosef in a moment. I want to share something from the, the soul of Hanukkah, the great new Reb, uh, Shlomo book that uh, Rabbi Shlomo Katz just put out. Fantastic book. And, and Rabbi Shlomo says in it something so beautiful. He says, you know, people think like to be like a good friend. What's a good friend? Someone who you can tell everything that's wrong about you to. Because to find someone who you can really trust in that way and share your flaws with, That's someone special. He says, but you know what a really great friend is? It's someone who you can tell everything that's right about you to. He says, because people are so afraid of jealousy that to find someone who you can share the things that are going right with you, who you can trust that is someone who is rooting for you and really loves you and is celebrating your victories, this is a really great friend. And that... As a result, because we, we're we so fearful of, of, of sharing good news because we don't want to make other people feel bad, that we are afraid to share our light. And so Rabbi Shlomo says that, that the lighting of the Hanukkah menorah is you're lighting your light in your house and you're opening up the window so everyone can see your light. And how beautiful this is because this is really like a really like, like a, just a, a, the, the perfected world where everyone gets to shine their light and everyone is happy to see everybody's light. And that Yosef, this is even more heartbreaking, that when Yosef was sharing his dreams with his brothers, he was telling them, look who I am. Look at my greatness. Like, I could be Mashiach. But that the other brothers were just, they couldn't, they couldn't, they didn't have vessels. They didn't have vessels to hold that light. It was just like, this is who he thinks he is? Oh, so this is who he thinks he is. Okay. They they couldn't, they couldn't hold on to it. And so, so, so Hanukkah is coming. The shining of the light of Hanukkah is coming. That we should be able to share each other's light, to be able to look at each other's light, and to to feel the joy. I, I, I once heard Reb Shlomo say that if you can't feel joy in someone else's joy, then you don't know the definition of joy. He said that that. Most people think that when something good happens to someone else, they think, oh really, God meant to give it to me, but God made a mistake. God got confused. He meant, you know, he was on his way to my house to drop off that thing, but he got mixed up, right? I mean, when you think about it, we're laughing, because we know on on a deep level it's true. We think, oh, yeah, well, right? He said it another time, you know the definition of jealousy? thinking that another person has your thing. We look at that, that's my thing. No, it's not your thing. God is not a confused postman. God knew exactly where he was putting that thing. (laughs) So, So finally, when the brothers do tshuva, when Yehuda does this amazing thing, where Yehuda says, "Instead of taking Benjamin, take me instead," then Yosef says, "Okay. Now that's 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 what you all should have done. First of all, you shouldn't have sold me to begin with, but you all should have been arguing with each other who should go instead of me, you know, so to speak. But in other words." Even if that wasn't the case, but just the idea that there, there, there was you can't get anything more genuine than 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 take me and said to him. That's the ultimate. And so at that point, the light of the chuva, in other words, when one does chuva, when one rectifies their ways, when one lifts themselves up, that literally produces light. So the light that's coming from that action. All of a sudden, now they see, now Yosef can see, it's me. Now they see it's Yosef. So, when we do tshuva, when we, when we, when we fix things, we, that produces light. All of a sudden, we see other people in different ways and other people see us in different ways. Now, and then new things happen then there's a whole domino effect that, that happens from all these things. Because we're not the people that we were a moment before. Now, I don't know, I, I, I want to share with you an insight from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, something I heard from Reb Shlomo. Reb Shlomo said that Rabbi Nachman was the most psychological of all the rabbis, um, and Rabbi Nachman said something very, very deep. He said that when a person makes a mistake, they begin to hate, and that's a that's a very, very deep cause and effect. If you want insight into the world, insight into yourself, a person makes a mistake that causes them to hate. Causes them to to hate those around them. Causes an aspect of self-hatred. And and that has lasting repercussions. And and let me get into another aspect. We'll double back to this teaching. but, But let me apply it to this situation. You see, again, another one of the heartbreaking aspects of the whole... Yosef and his brother's story is that when he reveals himself and then they, 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 they see who he is and then they bring Yaakov and down and, of course, Binyamin is, is free and Shimon is free and all the brothers are now coming together. So that, that plays like the end of the story. And then there's like another chapter to the story, which is kind of buried like, you know, at the end of the next Parsha. So because it's not right there, people forget about this part, and they don't think of it all together as as one. And that's that after Yaakov Avinu dies, the brothers say, okay, uh, I guess now is the time for us to become your slaves. And Yosef says, no, don't you understand? I, I really forgave you but the brothers never fully accepted the forgiveness that Yosef that gave them. And so that, that brings me again to this idea that it's one thing to forgive someone, that's a very big level, but it's another thing to actually accept the forgiveness and to allow yourself to be forgiven. You see, in the beginning of this week's parsha, it says, "Va'yigash love Yehuda." So, so, and and Yehuda approached him. And so, so we have Yosef and Yehuda, and we know that both of them represent different aspects of the messianic line. That that um, Yehuda is the one who who makes mistakes, but then gets it back together again. Like he says, he takes responsibility for this. And by the way, if you want to hear another heartbreaking thing, but just an essential, essential teaching, Rashi points out later on that the brothers said to Yehuda, are you ready for this? Remember, Yehuda was the leader of the brothers. And the whole kingly line and the whole Mashiach ben David, the messianic line, the the Mashiach, Will come from Yehuda, so Yehuda is the king, um, even though he was the fourth of the brothers but um but anyway, the brothers Rashi brings us that the brothers said to Yehuda, "If you had told us not to sell Yosef, we would have listened to you now. The reason why that tears me apart is because you know, there's so many times in, in all of our lives where we feel so intimidated that I, I'm afraid to say this because they'll, they'll tear me apart. If I say this, they'll tear me apart. Someone says, oh, let's go to this place. But you say, you think to yourself, that place isn't kosher. <laughs> you know? Maybe... Shouldn't we go to this place? But I'm so socially intimidated. Or, there are a million examples. There are a million examples. Some business practice. Someone wants to do a business practice. And you go, well, wait a second. That doesn't really feel right, you know. But you're so scared to say the right thing. And here you see that had Yehuda said, you know what, let's not sell Yosef. Let's not do this. This is a bad idea. We're reacting with emotion right now. Let's, let's not do this. The fact that they would have listened to him, all of history would have gone in another direction. But literally, the history of the world would have gone into a different direction. And we have a power that we don't take that seriously or that we're afraid to enact. Now, of course, you have to say it in the right way. Right? If a person is obnoxious or self-righteous when they're saying this or that, then the other people don't want to listen. And by the way, you, you should know that there's a, a, a dictum in the in the in the Talmud that if you give sort of like a, a ethical instruction on a point that you yourself are not keeping to someone else, they won't listen to you. Right? So I always kind of think of this phrase the 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 physics of spirituality that it's sort of like it's sort of like if you yourself have really mastered a particular trait and then you say it to another person it shoots into their bones they get it somehow even if they don't know that you are in in that way you know but if you say something that you're clearly not not doing yourself like an arrow that just falls like you know a few inches in front of you it doesn't it doesn't make it so so it's a real art form to know how to say the right thing at the right time but we should just know that that we probably all of us are capable of having a much greater influence than than we realize and that we we shouldn't be afraid if, if, if we have the ability to say it in a beautiful way or in the right way, that we shouldn't be intimidated. And I'm speaking to myself too, believe me. Because there are a lot of people who are waiting for the opportunity also not to do the wrong thing. And it's just they just need someone to propose it. And then they'll fall behind you in a, in a, in a positive way. They're waiting for someone else to stand up because they themselves don't have the guts to stand up. But again, a person has to do this in, a, in the proper way, in a, in a, in a way that doesn't um, belittle the other person. You know? Because then, um, you see, there, there, there are many ways where it can go wrong. Because there are people... See, a person has to really be a lover of truth. And um, and the, the problem with um, rebuking uh, or to try to be a, a, a moral leader in, in some direction is that so many times it gets wrapped up in the person's own ego. And, and so let me give you an example. When, let's say a person says, okay, I'm keeping this mitzvah, I'm doing this right thing, whatever it is. And then someone else wants to do something else. And you want to be a leader, right? And you want to, you know, suggest the the proper path. But so many people really, they take umbrage, not that they're going against God, but you're really going against what I've decided to do. (laughs) You're going against my path. You're going against my decisions. And then, But the person themselves often don't even have insight into their own psychodynamics. So they're going to say, no, you're going against the Torah or whatever it is. But really what they're saying is, no, you're going against me and my decisions. And so a person really has to purify themselves and really refine themselves. You know? So that when they're, when, if and when they're saying such a thing, That the other person understands, no, just like I'm trying to serve God, we should all try to serve God. That this will make the world a better place, a more beautiful place. As opposed to, listen to me. So, this is a very nuanced thing. This is a very, very nuanced thing. And you have to really think about it. You have to really think about it. Because, like I say, only when a person gets the balance right in themselves will it come out right? So the person that doesn't have to practice the words that they say, they have to practice clarifying their own thoughts on the matter. And then the words will come out right, God willing. Um, So so why weren't the brothers able to accept Yosef's forgiveness? So I want to suggest, this is just me talking, this Rabbi Nachman teaching that when one makes a mistake, they begin to hate and, and, and it can be a self-hatred too. And when that's there, it, 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 it stops the forgiveness from kicking in. Because if you can't forgive yourself, then you can't accept forgiveness either. It's like if the person's too broken. You see, there's something very beautiful in the Haftor, um for this week's Parsha. It's from uh, from Yechezkel. And it says that uh, Hashem says to Yechezkel, write down Yosef on one piece of wood and his brothers and, you know, comrades on and, and another piece of wood. Write down Yehuda and his brothers and his children and comrades. And then put the two planks of wood together and you'll see miraculously they're going to become one plank. And so... That's the idea of the whole family getting together, right? The family becoming one, which is what's happening here. But I want to suggest it on a different level right now, which is that, you see, just like I told you before, you have Yehuda, who makes mistakes, but then gets it together. Does tshuva, like rectifies himself. You also have another aspect, which is Yosef. Yosef at Sadik, right? Yosef, Mashiach ben Yosef. Yosef is the one who never makes a mistake. He's the one who's always getting it right. And so it's so, Reb Shlomo would point this out all the time, and it's one of my favorite things about the Torah. The fact that the Mashiach, the great Redeemer that humanity is waiting for, is going to come from, not the one who never made a mistake, but the one who made mistakes and fixed them up. To me, that's such a loving embrace to us in our humanity and in our imperfection that God gives us to make the ultimate Redeemer come from from us, essentially. From us human beings. You know, if you... One of the great things about all the Torah figures is that you see the mistakes that they make. And as much as we... Understand that they're from another category, another realm of soul. At the same time, they're also flesh and blood. And we can never forget that they were all human beings. That's not an invitation to treat them lightly or to not have the proper year and respect for them. But to also understand that all of us come from, are made out of this fallible material. But that the ultimate redeemer comes from this fallible material as well. That it's a descendant of Yehuda and not of Yosef. But what I want to suggest is the following: that we have Yehuda in ourselves and we have Yosef in ourselves, and that on one level, that the Tahaf Torah, we can maybe suggest when it's talking about taking the Yehuda and the Yosef, and that they're both coming together. That both of us have, all of us have this inside of us. We have our neshama, our godly soul, which remains pure and never makes a mistake. Inside of us, all of us, no matter how much wrong a person does, they have this spark of purity within themselves, right? That's like Yosef. Then we have another aspect of ourselves, which sometimes gets it right, sometimes gets it wrong. That's like Yehuda. And we've got to get the Yehuda and the Yosef together within ourselves together. Let me put it another way. How do you personally react when you come face-to-face with your own imperfection? This is one of the biggest questions in life. I'll say it again. How do you, in your daily life, each one of us, react when you come face-to-face with your own imperfection? So this is (laughs) Vayigash Elav Yehuda. And Yehuda approached Yosef. Right? Every time you confront your own fallibility, that's Yehuda approaching Yosef. Right? Yosef is the one who does no wrong. There's an aspect and a purity of your soul, a part of your soul, which never does any wrong. I'll tell you something mind blowing it's a Kabbalistic thought, very mind-blowing, not, not, I don't think, very well known, which is that when Adam ate from the Eitz-Hadas, from the tree of knowledge, an aspect of his soul left him so that there should always be an aspect of purity that never confronted or engaged in impurity or sin. So all of us have on some level, if you if I'm I'm making this connection, but it, it follows from the previous thought, if all of us have an aspect of purity, right? Maybe all of us have a little bit of a spark from that aspect of Adam Harishon that didn't participate in eating from the tree of knowledge. And so I would say most of us shut down and go into this place of avoidance and self hatred. I think that's kind of the go to thing. And I think that people who are really the great people in this world, or who become the great people in this world, because greatness is 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 arrived at and, and, and struggled over, it's not gifted. Are the people who can confront their own imperfections and just take a moment, exhale, not freak out, and then go, okay, all right, all right, I did that wrong. What do I have to do? All right, I have to make a. I have to call this person. I have to call this person. I have to. I have to write to this person. I have to pay that bill. All right. I mean, do you know this psychology? I've been guilty of this many times, where. You don't pay a parking bill and then it gets more money? And then your solution to that is to, oh, now for sure I'm not gonna pay it. (laughs) It's like, even more money? It's like, what am I doing? Like, I think that, you know, if I can deny the fact that it ever happened, then somehow I'll have succeeded in erasing it from a reality, as opposed to actually addressing the situation. And then, at a certain point, you, you you as you go, oh wait a second, it's only going to go up again, so let me just cut my losses and actually just pay it as painful as it is to pay it. So, Yehuda approaches Yosef, right? Yehuda. That ability in ourselves, the Yehuda within ourselves, who gets it together when he confronts Yosef, the one who doesn't do anything wrong, when we who make mistakes confront that aspect of our own selves, which remains pure, that doesn't make mistakes, not to lapse into that self-hatred because we've made mistakes. Like Rebbe Nachman says, when a person makes a mistake, they begin to hate. we have to take it to the next step, which is then, okay, now I can make it right though. Now I can make it right though. Because if I stay in this place of hate, then then when the forgiveness comes, I don't receive it because I don't have the ability to accept it. So, let's go deeper. So, Rebbe Leibola Eger points out the fact that it says, Vayigash elov Yehuda. Elov means him. It doesn't say Yosef. It says, and he approached him. Yehuda approached him. So, who's him? So, from the context we know, it means Yosef. Ah, but the Torah is infinite. When the Torah is putting in pronouns instead of names... Sometimes it wants to make a, a larger point. So Reblalah Eger says, when it says Yehuda approached him," it really means that he approached Hashem also. And now and now this conversation gets deeper, because Yehuda was simultaneously approaching God and Yosef at the same time. And when Yehuda was saying all of these words, he was pleading before God, and Yosef simultaneously. And the Malbim says in another context, with Abraham and the angels, the visiting angels, that he gives hospitality to. It says he bows before them, and when it says when it uses their name, it, it uses the name of God. So, so, so. The Malbim points out that. It's a mark of great people, very great people, that they have simultaneous conversations where they're talking to God and people at the same time. And if you want to try this in your own life, I'll give you a, uh, an example of how you can do it. It's a very mind-bending kind of thing. But... The next time you go, say, to a Starbucks and you order a cup of coffee, say to the person behind the counter, please may I have a cup of coffee? And you can be simultaneously davening for a cup of coffee as you are ordering a cup of coffee. You can be simultaneously asking God for the coffee while you're ordering the cup of coffee to the person who's working the register. And then the most amazing thing happens. You know what happens? You get the cup of coffee. (laughs) You can actually see your prayer. Remember I told you, our prayers are constantly being answered. We're just not praying them. Then you will actually see a prayer being answered right in front of your eyes, you know? So, So now let's apply this to ourselves. We say that when Yosef... When Yehuda approaches Yosef within ourselves, remember, Yecheskel says, take these, write them on two planks of wood, Yosef on one, Yehuda on the other, put them together and miraculously they're going to become one. So, so we're talking about that, that reconciliation that's really happening among this family, the, the family of Israel, okay, and, 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 and the whole world, you know, if you want to extend it. But. What I'm suggesting is this is also a dynamic of a person healing their own self. That That each one of us has to come together and not just be this compartmentalized mess of different raging emotions and thoughts and whatever it is, but to reach a clarity and a harmony in our own self which is the Yehuda aspect of ourselves, which is making mistakes and trying to get it together, but then confronting this aspect of ourselves, which always gets it right, the purity of the soul. So when the Yehuda within ourselves is confronting the Yosef within ourselves, it's also confronting Hashem. Because what does it say? Vayikash elav Yehuda. And Yehuda approached him. In other words, we have to understand... That when we're approaching our own perfection, this aspect of perfection which is inside of our souls, which each one of us has no matter how many mistakes that we make, our own, if you want to put it in uh, another way, our own perfectionism, right? Our own desire to get everything right, our own, you know, best case scenario of hopes and dreams that we're, all of us are never living up to on some level, right? So so that's hard. That's hard. That's what we're talking about. Being able to accept forgiveness, to really live out the forgiveness, and to get rid of the self-hatred. But I'm talking about something else right now. If you understand that the Yosef inside of yourself, because it says, Va'yigash a love that Yehuda approached him, that it's not just Yosef, that this is Hashem himself, that there's an aspect of Hashem inside of that when you have your own per- imperfection and you're I- that you're approaching that aspect of perfection within yourself you're really also approaching Hashem and Hashem forgives and Hashem is the one who's keeping us alive And ultimately, it's all Hashem. And Hashem loves us. And so, who are we not to love ourselves as well? You see, like, here's what people think. God loves me, but if God only knew me the way I knew me... (laughs) You know why God loves me? Because he doesn't know me as well as I know me. What? What kind of ridiculous thought is that? God knows you infinitely better than you know yourself, first of all. God also knows all your previous lifetimes. He knows everything about you. More than you'll ever know about yourself, God knows. And God loves you. So a person has to understand that they don't have the luxury of hating themselves. That it's us-er. it's It's forbidden because if God loves you, you have to love you. And God is not loving you by mistake because he doesn't know as much as you do. So let me put it in very... Uh, visceral terms so would you eat a piece of pork hopefully not so so how can you so but and yet you give your permission to hate yourself right like why is that okay Why why is the other not okay but this is okay this is also not okay and imagine if you want to sort of like have a tool to work with this, that when you accept, remember, it takes two people to insult you. The other person who says the insult and you for it to accept the insult. You know, if you have a good level of self-esteem, if someone says something bad about you, you know what? They're the jerk. What does it have to do with you? So he says this, who says it's true? Because he says that. What does he know? So if you say such a thing to yourself now, because you have a a negative thought about yourself, you don't have to accept that thought. You, You have the power and the ability not to accept the negative thought. You can say, okay, you can say it's true, but it's not true. Because obviously on some level, I'm lovable since God loves me. And then you say, well, am I really lovable? And then work till you find something about yourself that's lovable because it's there. If God knows it, then if you think about it long enough, you can figure it out too. Rabbi Nachman is very, very strong about this. He talks about the utter importance of, of, of finding good points within yourself and thinking about them. And one has to construct a positive self-image. You have to have a bank of positive thoughts about yourself that you can constantly reference. This is very, very important. This is very, very, very important. Because otherwise, a person is literally going to go through life hating themselves because they never took the time of doing like, it's like plastic surgery. You have to reconstruct an image of yourself within yourself. The time that I did this right, and the time that I loaned that person money, and the time where I drove this person to that place, and the time when I sat with this person who was crying. And you have to bring together this combination, this cluster of memories And say, you know what? This is me. Okay, so you may have done a thousand things wrong. I certainly have. But what does that have to do with anything? This is life and death. This is not a joke. This is not just a piece of advice. This is life and death. See... When the spies went out to look at the land of Israel, the land of Israel is very great. It's very beautiful. They brought back a negative report. And Rashi says that they brought back, they already knew what they were going to report before they left. So, you know, journalists, most journalists, when they write a story, they already have the story that they want to write. And then they go and they talk to people to get some quotes to just buttress the story that they already know they want to write. When the spies went out, they knew the story that they already wanted to tell about Israel, and then they found some things to highlight what it is that they already wanted to say. This is all of us. All of us have an idea about what we think life is, and then we look around, and we just find constant supporting evidence for how we already feel about life. You know, I didn't get the deal. Of course I didn't get the deal because I'm the one who never gets the deal. I missed the plane. Of course I missed the plane because I'm the one who always misses the plane. Right? Or, I didn't get that deal. You know why? Because God is good. God's got something better in store for me. I missed the plane. You know what? Who knows how God is saving my life? If I had made that plane, who knows? I got a parking ticket. You know, parking ticket can be a kapora. Thank you, God, for taking it out of my money instead of something else. If a, if a person has a narrative about life, that God is good, that God is involved in everything that we're doing, right, that the world is heading toward perfection, then they'll find ways to to reinforce this. So one's view of one's own self and one's view of the world is dependent upon having a very positive understanding. You have to make a narrative. Who are you, what are you? What is this world, where is it going? You have to have a narrative. Because the truth is, is that you do have a narrative. You say, well, I don't have a narrative. You do have a narrative. You may not be aware of your narrative, but you do have a narrative. You do have a point of view. It's already working because there's the mind and then there's the heart. Okay? Remember, it says that um, people think the, the, the eye sees and then the heart desires. Right? That it goes from the eye to the heart. But it says, the Torah says, Acharei, be careful of how your eyes go. Acharei, levavchem enechem. It puts the heart first. Don't follow after the heart and the eyes, it says. Why does the heart go first? Because if the heart doesn't desire, the eye doesn't see. First the heart desires, then the heart see, then the eyes see. You know, I always say, which is that, you know, sometimes like I know that some women always want to know, like they say, oh, what was that person wearing? Right? So I'm telling this to the men, right? If your wife or girlfriend or whatever it says, oh, you were at that party, what was she wearing? The only answer is, I don't know. <laughs> Because if the heart doesn't desire, the eye doesn't see. (laughs) This is true in general. You'll find when you're in different moods that you're going to notice different things. And you're going to notice different things based on the mood that you're in. Because where your heart is, that's where your eyes are. So what I'm trying to tell you is that each of us has to put into our hearts a positive image of the world, and a positive image of ourselves. Because if you don't consciously have a positive image of the world, and certainly a positive image of God, which is what it all boils down to, and a positive image of yourself, right? Because God is good, so then the world is good. God loves you, so you're good, right? So, so if you don't have a positive, uh, if you don't consciously know, if you can't consciously tell me how you're looking at the world, and say it, say it in a positive way, I guarantee you you're looking at it in a negative way, and you're not even aware of it. I guarantee you, because those people who have a positive understanding of how the uh, uh, of the world, they can tell you, oh yeah, how do you see the world? Every positive person is going to tell you, oh. People are good, life is good, I'm lucky to be alive. Every positive person can tell you how they see the world. If you go up to a negative person and say, "How do you see the world?" I don't know. But you talk with them long enough. It's like, "Well, who knows what's going to happen next? And the world's a very scary place, and I'm not the greatest person." If you talk with them long enough, you'll get it out. So what I'm trying to say is, is that these things don't happen by accident. And that these things are not irreversible. That, But it takes work. Remember, all these things, to change a thought, like imagine, like, I always try to think of this, like there are better examples than this. So maybe I'll just give you the better examples. <laughs> we'll skip the less good examples. Rabbi Israel Salander says that the, the loudest sound in the world is, that, is the sound of a habit being broken. right? And that it's easier to learn through all of Shas, the whole Talmud, than it is to change one character trait. So when we talk about correcting negative thinking, don't think that this is a small job. This is a giant job. The reason why I'm telling you that is not to scare you away or to intimidate you, but that you should appreciate the magnitude of effort that has to go into what I'm talking about. Because people will go, Oh, I hear it. It's a good idea. OK, I'll try to do that. And then it's like, Oh, I, I promise you, you've already failed. I promise you, you failed. Unless your approach is, Wow, OK, I'm going to have to really analyze how I look at the world. Is God really good? By the way, I, I I gave a talk on the goodness of God because a lot of people like wonder if they, okay, I hear God's good. Is he really good? So I, I spent a whole talk on going through going through all the examples of the goodness of God. So you can search for that. I forgot what the exact name of it is, but something like Understanding the Goodness of God, something like that. But but anyway, one has to be very conscious in terms of um, addressing this, and, and very methodical about it, but it only will make all the difference in the world and in your life. So <laughs> it's not like, um, you know, what? Try to eat more broccoli. You know, then it's a little, little unclear exactly how much I'm benefiting from that. I'm sure I am benefiting from it, but it's it's a little unclear. This you you'll be able to actually enjoy life more. And be more productive. Um, okay, so so let's just recap really fast. Well. Basically, God made this world, and he he made something really awesome. I mean, anyone who opens up their eyes can see how awesome the world is. And I can't imagine, in 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 a zillion billion years, that God made this world in order to bum us out. It just makes no sense. It, It makes no sense at all. It makes no sense. And just, can you imagine, like, here, let me, let me, let me end with this, okay? Someone in, in, at the happy meeting, they gave me a chocolate coin, right? They were giving them out, so I got one. And it had a hologram on it, so pretty. And I thought, well, you know, like, one of my kids is going to like this. So I'm gonna. I'll save it. I put it in my pocket, in a special pocket where it wouldn't melt. And I thought I'll give it to one of my kids, and they'll be happy. So later on, um, I, I thought, well, if I just give, I only have one. If I just give it to one, maybe the others will get jealous, you know? So I, so then there was a little boy who was over, and I thought, oh, I can give it to him because you know that that'll be. And I thought, well, I don't want to just give him the coin. I want him to feel like. He earned the coin, then he'll like it even more. So he had mentioned something from the Torah, like earlier. And so I knew, so I, I said, I want to ask you a, a Torah question. And I knew that, I, that he knew the answer because I, 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 I tailored it so that, so that he would be able to give a correct answer. So I asked him the question and he got the right answer. And then I said, here, and I gave him the chocolate coin. And he was so happy, right? And then I thought to myself, you know, he thinks that he got the right answer, so he got a chocolate coin. But he doesn't understand that I wanted to give him the chocolate coin, so I asked him a question. And then I thought to myself, this is the whole world. God, we think, okay, I did something right, so maybe something good happens, right? God created the entire world to give us good stuff. Do you understand this is what he had in mind initially? Was that he wanted to give us the good stuff and then he created the entire world in order to create a mechanism for us to be able to receive the good stuff and for us to be able to earn it. By the way, I'm telling you this is the Ramachal. What I'm saying is the Ramachal. This is the Ramachal and why God created the world. You want to know why God created the world? This is what the Ramachal says. He puts it in other language though. So this whole world exists because God wanted to give us good stuff. Now imagine you, you, you take out someone who you love on a, on a, on a special day. Special, special day or whatever it is. Uh, and they're just not enjoying any of it. And it's like you're taking them to this movie that you like. And you're taking them to this park that's so beautiful and this thing. And the whole time they're miserable. How does that make you feel? I did all this. I made all these calls. I'm spending all this money so that they should enjoy and they're just complaining and they're miserable. So we're on like a 120-year date with God. <laughs> so what's going on right now? You think, you're on a, you think you're alone? You're on a date right now. <laughs> And it's like, do you really want to be the person who's complaining the entire time? It's like, you know, I invented this thing. It's called Los Angeles. Check it out. There's like so many interesting things, you know? You don't know, like it? I got another place. It's called Sweden. Like, unbelievable things, you know? Maybe you can go there, you know? You want to go there later? Let's go to Sweden. And then Israel, right? Remember I told you about holy things? It's all in Israel. And meanwhile, it's like I'm tired, <laughs> my leg hurts, I'm nauseous. <laughs> really? For 120 years, you're nauseous? Really? So, all right, we'll stop. <clears throat>